Leaders are readers. After interviewing over 300 experts on my podcast, I've compiled the top 30 books written by Mindset Advantage guests. You can download the list and listen to the episodes where I interview the authors at djhillier.com slash 30 books. You can also head over to my Instagram bio to download the free ebook right now. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast, a show dedicated to insightful conversations in a world full of sound bites. Hosted by fitness coach, performance optimization coach, and national speaker, DJ Hilliard. These podcasts are designed to help you attack the gap from where you are now to where you want to be. The episodes take a deep dive into leadership, mindset, and fitness. Follow the show on Instagram at Mindset Advantage Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 334 of the Mindset Advantage Podcast. And this week, I get to chat with the legendary Dr. Ellen Langer. Dr. Langer is a renowned psychologist and professor of psychology at Harvard University. She is best known for her work in the field of mindfulness and the psychology of aging. Dr. Langer's research has focused on the impact of mindfulness on various aspects of human behavior, including health, decision-making, and creativity. Her groundbreaking work challenges traditional views on aging and suggests that much of the physical and mental decline associated with aging can be attributed to social and psychological factors rather than purely biological ones. Dr. Ellen Langer has written several best-selling books, including Mindfulness and The Power of Mindful Learning. Her work has had a significant impact on the fields of psychology, health, and wellness, and she continues to be an influential figure in the study of mindfulness and its applications. I believe Dr. Langer's first book came out in the 80s, so she is uh, well known as the queen of mindfulness. And being in this field now for four decades, it was so cool just to get a chance to hear some wisdom and learn from such a legend in the psychology department. A little bit of a heads up, uh, my uh, connection, uh, the tech, I had some technical difficulties on my side, just with my internet and my microphone networking. And then her Wi-Fi was a little bit spotty as well. So overall, just connection wasn't that great on the technical side of things. But I still wanted to air this podcast because Dr. Uh, Langer is, like I said, a legend herself. And I do think there's a ton of really great wisdom in this one hour conversation. Some of the things we got into first was, was what is mindfulness from the queen of mindfulness? I had to hear if she had a definition that is a go-to for her. After that, we broke down the misconceptions of mindfulness. We talked about the counterclockwise study. This is such a cool study that Dr. Langer put on herself back in the day. It's been replicated uh, several times since, but Dr. Ellen Langer was the first to come up with the counterclockwise study and actually wrote a book about it. After that, we talk, talked about the power of our words, the Air Force pilot study, Zeno's paradox, the illusion of control. Let me close down by talking about what it means to be mindfully optimistic. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating review and share it on your social medias. Also remember that this podcast is now on YouTube. Head over to YouTube and type in DJ Hillier or The Mindset Advantage to watch some of these great episodes at the leisure of your own home on your own couch. 
All right, without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this great conversation with the legendary woman herself, Dr. Ellen Langer. Let's go. Mindset Advantage podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. Rob Wolf, founder of Element, is also a biochemist, New York Times bestseller, and previous guest on this podcast, and is someone I trust dearly. Element is currently being used by the highest performers all over the world, including athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Special Forces, and the Olympics. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the Mindset Advantage podcast, you can receive a free sample pack by using the link www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. Go get yours now. Dr. Langer, welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for inviting me, DJ. I want to get right to it. Can we get to the definition? What is mindfulness? What is it? Yeah, that's a wonderful place to start. You know, often I do these podcasts just presuming people know. And uh, okay, so when people hear the word mindfulness, they often think about meditation. Mindfulness, as we study, it has nothing to do with meditation. Meditation is fine. It's just different. All right. To meditate, you meditate is a practice that if you engage in it, typically results in post-meditative mindfulness. Mindfulness, as I study it, is more immediate. Once you know you don't know, you tune in. That's really all there is to it. And so there are two ways to become mindful. Um, the first, and but the hardest in some sense, is to recognize that we don't know. We don't know anything. Right? I mean, we think we know. In fact, a way of understanding mindlessness is being frequently in error, but rarely in doubt. All right? Our teachers, our parents teach us absolutes. So before I, and remind me to get back and give you an actual definition, but my life changed years ago. I was at this um, horse event and this man asked me, would I watch his horse because he wanted to get his horse a hot dog? You know, I, I was a little cocky. I mean, I'm Harvard, Yale all the way through. I have so many awards and recognition that you know, nobody knows better than I. Horses are everest. They don't eat me. He came back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. And that's when I realized that everything I thought I knew could be wrong. And which I actually enjoyed because that opened up a world of possibilities. Um, and so if we recognize 
that everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. We can't know for sure. Many horses might not eat meat, but that doesn't mean all horses don't eat meat. In fact, all of the information we get from science are just probabilities. It says that if we did the exact same study again, which we can never do exactly the same thing, we're likely to get these findings. And those are translated by teachers and, and textbooks um, in, in the media as absolutes, not horses probably don't eat meat, but horses don't eat meat. When you think you know something for sure, you don't pay any attention. If you knew what I was going to say next, your mind would wander. Why bother listening to me? Okay. So, if we recognize that we don't know, that we can't know for sure, and nobody knows, so you don't have to feel bad about not knowing, nobody knows, you're naturally going to sit up and, and take notice. The alternative is, if you um, ask yourself, uh, try to find three new things about the things that you think you know, you're going to see, gee, you don't know them as well as you thought you did, then your attention naturally goes to them. Now, in the world at large, we're typically taught single answers to questions. And in fact, we should recognize that there are always many ways of looking at anything. So the more mindful you are, the more options you have, the more you recognize it could be this, it could be that, and life becomes, in some sense, more interesting for all of us. All right, so simply actively notice. Um, notice, um, oh, I, if you're living with somebody, three things about them today that's different, walk outside. You know, I paint and I came to it late in life. And before I started to paint, I thought, you know, well, leaves except in the fall are green. Then I started to paint and I started to look, you know, there are many, many, many different kinds of green and it became more interesting. So what happens is as you're actively noticing the neurons are firing and 45 years of research has shown that it's literally and figuratively enlivening. It's what we're doing when we're having fun. So, you know, people, um, I, I claim, um, argue, whatever, <laughs> that people should be mindful all the time. So, oh my God, to a lot of people, that sounds exhausting. But no, you know, it, people think of it as thinking, and even thinking has gotten a bad rap. Thinking is fun. What's not fun is worrying that you're not going to come up with the right answer, right? So, but when you're at play, you're mindful. You know, if you... Um, if you're not mindful, you're not going to be engaged in what you're doing or enjoy what you're doing. So let's say, for example, that you came to visit me at my house. You've never been here before. You wouldn't have to practice being mindful. You'd walk in, you'd be curious. What books is she reading? Why she, oh, is that one of her paintings? You know, and look at that food over there. You know, it would just all become fun. Okay, so mindfulness is easy. It's energy begetting, um, and um, it's the essence of engagement, and it's literally and figuratively enlivening. So, um, so we should be mindful. Um, now, well, not only that, not only is it good for our health, it's good for our relationships, and we can get into that later, or even now, that when you understand that whoever you're with, whenever you're disparaging somebody else or yourself, you're being mindless. Because people uh, don't do what doesn't make sense to them, right? So if you ask yourself, you know, when if you want to call me gullible, for example, um, that's fine. But from my perspective, what am I doing? And I'm being trusting. 
If I see you as inconsistent, well, you're not intending to be inconsistent, but you are intending to be flexible. And so you can see that how this would lead to our improved relationships. So it's good for your health. It's good for your relationships. Um, when you perform whatever you're doing, creating anything, doing anything, it is it improves the performance. We did this with orchestras. We make them more mindful and the music they play um, is much preferred by audiences to typical, more mindless, um, you know, so it leaves its imprint in what we do. So it's good for you in every way. Um, uh, and it's easy and it's fun. That's the end of it. I mean, wh why not? You know, I, I love, I love, I love the word mindfulness. I love what it brings to the table. One of my other favorite word is, is curious. And the, the byline of this show is to stay curious and all my t-shirts and gear that I sell on the back and stay curious. I'm such a big believer in curiosity and hearing you talk about mindfulness. I can't help but think of the word curious. If you could okay, bridge but, the gap, are there, is that same or is it not? Well, well, no, uh, when you're curious, it's the same. But as soon as you get the answer, so let's say um, I spill some hot chocolate on the newspaper and I'm looking and saying, you know, is that an R that I'm reading? Okay, so I'm curious. I want to find out. But once I determine that it's an R, then I become mindless again. So curiosity, if you think now you've resolved it, now you know the answer, then you're going to be mindless. But it's good a good station. first step, DJ. It is a good first step. I love it. Um, so, so what do you believe, Dr. Lang? What do you believe is the most significant uh, misconception or misunderstanding about mindfulness that, that you hope to challenge or clarify with your work? What's the biggest misconception that you're trying to overcome? Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess you know, I've already said that it has nothing to do with meditation and that um, – I think that, and meditation is wonderful, but for lots of people, it feels woo-woo or, you know, whatever. And um, this mindfulness is just a way of life. You know, so it's for people to understand that if you're going to do something, show up for it. In my view, if you're not going to show up for it, don't do it. Whether it's brushing your teeth, um, you know, playing a basketball game, what, whatever it might be um, that you can do anything mindfully or mindlessly and the consequences um, are so different depending on which of these two ways you do it and you're mindless you know the system is basically turning itself off and you know and you you can tell when somebody is mindless you know they uh, or let me turn it around we have data when we uh, encourage people to be more mindful they're seen as charismatic they light up and so if you had a choice, which way would you like to be and seemingly robotic or uh, alive and attractive to others? Again, the choice is simple. Talk to me a little about, so I'm coming through the lens of a mental performance coach. I work a lot with high school and college athletes. One of the things that I really try to work on with these kids is to be more present and uh, to be more mindful. If we can use those terms interchangeably, correct me yes. if I'm wrong. But one of the things that we're trying to do is, is be here, be in the moment, feel where you are, be yeah. present. Can you go, okay. can you talk to me about that? Yeah, um, thanks for bringing that up. You know, it, it's very nice to tell people to be in the present, but in my view, it's really um, an empty instruction because when you're not there, you're not there to know you're not there. 
So you can't turn around and say, okay, I'm going to be here, right? Uh, so the way to be there then is this act of noticing. And that puts you in the present. Okay, so you need to know how to get into that present state. Um, you know, go on. No, go ahead. Do you have any ideas? No, what I was just going to say that um, when we, do, we, we create categories and, you know, it can be work, play, it can be on the field, sports field or off and so on. And that serves some function, but it's misleading to act as if we're different people. In those different settings. So one of the things, and when you're saying that you're uh, educating, helping these young um, uh, young people, men or, or men and women, both, both, okay, um, is to you know, in, in general, that if their life is improved off the field, their performance will be better on the field. And so people need to understand the importance of stress, for instance, that. Uh, stress is a result of the view you take of things. Things in and of themselves are neither good nor bad, stressful, not stressful. And when you're mindful, you have multiple views you know, available to yourself. So you know, why take the one that's going to make you worry? Um, and so when you're stressed, you're doing two things. First, you're assuming that something is going to happen. And second, that when it happens, it's going to be awful. We can't predict. We don't know what's going to happen. So you want to reduce your stress. You tell these students that what they should do is come up with three, five reasons why it won't happen. So it went from it's going to happen. It may not happen. So you immediately feel better. Next, now let's assume it does happen. How is that actually an advantage? And it, there are always advantages there. So you went from, oh, my God, this terrible thing's going to happen to this thing may or may not may or may not happen. And if it happens, you know, there are all these good things that will follow from um, or give them a few one liners. Ask, ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? Because most of the things we worry about are really no big deal. So we have to remind ourselves of, of that. And most of the things we worry about never happen anyway. So another thing that they can do is think back to the last time they were really stressed and um, see what ended up happening. The fact that they're able to talk about it now means that you know, they were able to get through it. So if mindfulness reduces our stress, if mindfulness improves um, our relationships, um, that's going to help with whatever sport we're doing. But then also when we're doing whatever sport, we need to recognize that everything is changing. And so you can't um, do just what you did before because the situation is not quite the same. And that takes me to some work that we've done with practice. Uh, I wrote a paper many years ago about how practice makes imperfect. And the reason practice can and typically does, but not always, make us imperfect is because we practice practice with the intention to learn it so well we don't have to think about it. But that just means we learn it so well that now we're mindless. And given that things change, um, that's not the best way to be. So when you practice, what you want to do is as well as you can notice how this time it's different from the last time. And so you stay awake. 
you know, um, I, I'm a tennis player. And um, so, you know, if you learn your strokes and you play them the same way all the time, and all of a sudden you're playing lefty, you know, oh my gosh, it's a whole different game, right? And things are always changing. You don't need it to be that dramatic. You play golf, you know, the weather is never exactly the same. The course, uh, even if you played it first, you know, and now you're playing in a tournament, it's not the same. The grass is not the same. The air is not the same. You're not as strong or you're stronger than you were a moment before. That, you know, if you tune into these things, your performance will improve. And since I'm on a roll now, let me add one Keep other going. thing. That's I love right. it. Okay. So lots of this book, The Mindful Body, is about mind-body unity. Um, and it's nice to think about a mind and a body. When we have this dualist notion, the question is, how do you get from this fuzzy thing called a thought to something material called the body? So this is all nonsense. Let's put the mind and body back together. Then wherever you're putting the mind, you're necessarily putting the body, which is very important for an athlete, right? Okay, but so one of the things that people take for granted, <clears throat> excuse me, mistakenly, is something like fatigue, you know, that because you've gotten tired in the past doing this, this is going to keep happening and so on. But fatigue is much more a psychological concept than most people believe. And this might be important for your, um, the people you work with. We did lots of research on fatigue. Let me tell you the easiest one. We asked 10 people, um, to do a hundred jumping jacks and tell us when they get tired. They tend to get tired around 70. We take another group and we ask them to do 200 jumping jacks. Tell us when you get tired. They get tired at 140. All right. So, which means that what we're doing essentially is buying into this uh, or wearing this mindset that says when you get two thirds of the way there, fatigue sets in. And um, fatigue is also uh, uh, context dependent. You change the context, all of a sudden you have renewed energy. So this is a fun one. This isn't my research. Frank Beach did this, I think, in the 50s, but whatever, a long time ago before either one of us were born. I don't get to say that very often. <laughs> um, all right. And so what he did was he took these little boy rats and he'd introduce a little girl rat. And they would copulate until the little boy rat was exhausted, right? Good. Now, he takes a little boy rat, a little girl rat. They copulate. And now, right before the little boy rat gets exhausted, he introduces a new little girl rat. And they're ready to go immediately. You know, I, and one of my um, uh, favorite examples, but it's a fiction, but you, know, you can imagine somebody word processing all day long and, uh, and they're just getting exhausted and they can't wait to get home and they get home and they start playing the piano. You know, essentially the same physical activity, but the context is different. And so when fatigue sets in, uh, change the context. You don't have to change the activity to get renewed energy. I, I love hearing about your studies and I could I could go the rest of the hour just hearing the studies that you've done in the last 40 years. I think a great place to start on your studies is the counterclockwise study yeah. and you're, um, you're famous okay. for this. It's on the, it's on the Simpsons. So it's got to be famous. Right? Yeah, that's Talk right. to our <laughs> listeners that haven't heard it yet. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I did this um, many years ago. Um, actually, um, 
my mother had had a very bad case of cancer that had metastasized from her breast to her pancreas, which is the end game. And then magically it was gone. And so lots of my life's work has been designed to figure out, well, how could that happen? And the idea of mind-body unity explains it. It explains placebos, spontaneous remissions, and the like. Put the mind and body back together. Where. Wherever you're putting the mind, you're necessarily putting the body. So the first test of this was this counterclockwise study. Um, what we did was um, retrofit a retreat to 20 years earlier. Now, this wasn't Hollywood, although Hollywood has played with the idea, not just The Simpsons. Um, but as well as we could, you know, we got rid of anything current and made it seem that it was 20 years earlier. Then we had elderly men live there for a week as if they were their younger selves. So they would talk about past events as if they were just unfolding. They would have discussions um, about Khrushchev and things of this sort. This is a long time ago. They'd watch the untouchables, you know, TV shows and everything that was current for them 20 years earlier. All right. Now we took many, many measures before we started and then repeated them at the end without any medical intervention. And remember, these are elderly men. Their vision improved, their hearing improved, their memory, their strength, and they looked noticeably younger. It, it was astonishing. I mean, we did this so long ago that in every book, I still write about it. And, you know, in the first book, because it was so different from what anyone was thinking, this was before people thought about mind-body medicine and, and the like, uh, before the medical world recognized that psychology mattered at all. Um, you know, in the medical world, the old medical model was you need the introduction of an antigen in order to get sick. And it's nice to be happy, but it's irrelevant. Okay. Um, and um, so I described the study, but, you know, without, um, I don't know, the, the felt description. Um, the difference is even as soon as they got to the retreat was palpable. A few of them who work, uh, used canes no longer needed the canes. I was playing football with them at the end, touch football. Touch football, nothing too, but I don't know if that was because of me or because of them. But, you know, I mean, it, it was very real. And so then uh, going forward, and there are maybe 10 studies that we've done since that time that I report in the mindful body um, that are, you know, just they weren't the first, but in some sense, they may be just as dramatic. So let me give you the next one we did was with chambermaids. Okay, so chambermaids are exercising all day long. They don't see, realize that they're exercising. They think exercise is what you do afterward, because that's what the Surgeon General is. It's at a desk all day long, thinks. So all we do is divide them into two groups. And one group, we're going to teach them that their work is exercise. Making a bed is like working at this machine at the gym and you know, so on. So now we have a group of um, chambermaids who see their work as exercise. Without working any harder, eating any differently, by the end of the study, they lost weight. There was a change in waist-to-hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down just by changing their minds. The control we have over our health and well-being, DJ, goes so far beyond what anybody presumes. So then, I, I won't go through all the studies. We want to talk about other things as well, but the, the more, most recent one is kind of fun. 
we inflict a wound. Now, it would have been uh, sadistic, and I would have wanted to do it, and the review committee wouldn't let me do it even if I wanted to. So it's, it's not a big wound, but it's still a wound. And we have these people in front of a clock. Unbeknownst to them, the clock is rigged. So for a third of the people, it's going twice as fast as real time. For a third of the people, it's going half as fast as real time. And for a third of the people, it's real time. So the question we're asking is, will that wound heal based on clock time, perceived time, or based on real time, which is what most people would assume. And it turns out it heals based on clock time. So we can speed up our healing. We, we've done this with diabetes. We can change our uh, insulin level. I mean, there are you know, so many um, versions of this that I talk about in the book, always you know, reminding me that we cannot know that we can't for anything. You just can't know. And, um, and trying, doing is so much uh, more rewarding than presuming it can. You know, let's look at it way you can either believe you can believe you can't and it can turn out that you can or you can't now if you believe you can um you're more likely to find out that you can uh if you believe you can't and you can that's really sad right look at what you've given up and this condition i don't think ever exists but if you believe you can't and you can't which, how can you ever know? Um, so what? You know. Um, anyway, when you add it all up, uh, it's so much more fun to presume you're going to be able to do it, and um, um, and we can never provide evidence that it can't be done. I was just watching last night the um, movie about Diana Nyad, um, who in her sixties. Uh, did this enormous, uh, what was it, swimming from Florida to Cuba, Cuba to Florida, whatever, after many tries, and everybody trying to get her to give up. And she felt she can do it, and you never know, and you try, and if you can't, okay, and then you try again, you try differently. So science can only tell us that what we have tried didn't work. It can never tell us that there isn't something else that could work. And th this goes back to fatigue in, in a sense. Um, I asked my students, how long is it, uh, can a person run without stopping? Now, these are Harvard kids. They know I wouldn't ask the question if it were 26 miles. Because it's a marathon. Okay. So then it becomes like an auction. One says 30, 35, 40, 40. We get up to 50. Nobody goes beyond 50. And even with 50, when the person says it, everybody is snickering. Then I show them a video of the Tariamora, which are a tribe in Copper Canyon in Mexico, who can run over 200 miles without stopping. And amazing, right? But you're not going to get to 200 miles when you think uh, it's not humanly possible to go beyond 50. And you're not going to get to even 26 if you say, it's just I myself can't possibly do it. You can't know that. And if in doing it, it's fun, um, you know, what is the cost? Even if you don't end up getting to wherever you're headed. So whether it's whether whether it is aging or a wound what there's got to be some piece of this where language comes into play where the oh, words we say yeah. are so powerful what, yeah. can you speak to that yeah thank you for pointing that out you know i've done so many podcasts 
And, um, and nobody has, has asked me that. Some of the time I remember and I just bring it up. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm very sensitive to language. And um, um, there are some things that we say that seem to be good. Um, and that when I think about them, they're better than the alternative, but not as good as it could be. Right? There's always a better than better way. So the thing you're probably thinking of is trying. Um, so you tell somebody to try. And um, if you recognize, you know, if I said to you, DJ, here's an ice cream cone, try to eat it. You'd look at me like I was crazy. When yeah, I want to try it, I'm just going to eat it. And so trying has built into it the expectation for failure and that we're oblivious to. So trying much better than saying, I can't do it, I won't even begin. And that's why we say, yes, we should tell everyone to try. Uh, but it's not nearly as good as just telling people to do it, where you're conveying the expectation that they will be able to. And if you believe you're able to, you notice more things, which then makes uh, success more likely. So we do a number of studies, you know, nothing groundbreaking, but we have one group doing whatever the task is versus a group that is trying. We tell them to try to do it, and the doing always outperforms the trying. Hope is another one like this. Um, you know, hope is certainly better than being hopeless, but hope again has an expectation for failure built into it. You know, when I get up in the morning and I go into the kitchen, I'm not hoping I'll be able to get a cup of coffee. I just presume I'll be able to get it, right? So uh, there are ways we um, reveal our, our low expectations and we tend to, you know, to be oblivious to it. Did you have a particular one in mind, like forgiveness? You know, this something one? I something I hear a lot, and uh, I'm also a personal trainer, and I work at a, at a gym. And sometimes when I hear working with 30, 40, 50 year olds on their fitness, sometimes the the phrase I'll hear, and it just bugs me, is "I'm too old for this shit." I'm yeah. too old. I'm too this. So what are what's some of the language when it comes to aging? That's like an immediate red flag. Well, you know, well, sure. Just the word aging. You know, I discovered this many, many years ago and I wrote about it where who decided at what point in life do you go from developing to aging? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, all of our mindsets are such that, you know, as you get older, everything falls apart. And uh, there's, you know, um, uh Things change, but I don't know that we have to see those changes as necessarily decrements. You, you may do things differently. Um, yeah, I think people think that, that as you get older, at some point you get sick and then you die, not recognizing that one can live uh, healthy uh, their entire lives. And, um, you know, so the way to counteract that is to provide people with instances of all these people who are doing remarkable things at all different ages, and then they come to believe it. You know, I, I had this because I've been studying aging, the growth in late adulthood rather than aging mm -hmm. uh, for, um, I don't know, 40, 50, 40 years. And um, you might be too young, but there used to be this weatherman on television, um, Willard Scott. Did you ever see Willard Scott? Okay, I have it. So, so he would give the weather and then he would say, and Rosie in Michigan turned 100 today. Happy birthday, Rosie. And he'd pick like three people. And all of a sudden, 
living to 100 seem much more likely, even though the numbers, you know, if you have, uh, I don't know how many million people live, you know, that one or two or five over that number is a very small fraction, but it made it seem likely. And just as by telling people about the Tariamora, uh, running further seems likely. And so, um, yeah, I mean, many of the beliefs we have about what we're capable of were true in the past. You know, people have to remember in the past, people, there was a time people didn't live past 25 or so, then 40, you know, and so on. And so it's not just the uh, number of years changing, but, you know, all of the strength we're bringing with us at that point. So, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I think it's because we have all these negative mindsets about getting older that um, we we see change. We don't see change as change. We just see it as, you know, as getting worse. And much of what gets worse is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I must tell you, DJ, how old are you? I'm 30. 30. Well, and that's lovely. And you see him, a remarkable young man. No way do I want to be 30 again. <laughs> you know, that I wouldn't give up all the experience and wisdom that I've accumulated over the years. And so people need to pay attention to the upside of all of it. Um, one of my students from a long time ago, now teaches at Yale, Becca Levy, did some research. Um, let me see if I can get this right. Where um, people's uh, degree to which you're positive about old age can predict um, how long you're going to live. And an uh, eight-year difference, I think, is what she found. But, you know, wow. that's, again, it'll be greater for some people. So um, that's why when I teach these Harvard students, young people, younger than you, who may not care at all about being old, because when you're young, you don't think you're ever going to be old. I mean, I'm old, and I don't even think about I'm ever going to be old. So. Um, but to realize that your views now will, uh, to a large part, determine how long you will live, what kind of life you will live. Um, so we need to open up um, our minds to all of this immediately at, at every age. And that's why I'm so fascinated by the mind, because basically what I'm hearing, if I'm hearing you correctly, Dr. Langer, is that we can think our way to a quicker death. We can think our way to a longer prognosis. We can think our way to a long injury, a longer injury. I mean, really, our, our mind is so much more in control than we think. Yeah, and I believe that deeply. Um, if you're told you're going to fall apart, it's not so easy to convince yourself that you're not going to fall apart. So it's not like, you know, uh, and, and the beliefs have to be full. You know, it can't be, well, maybe, um, maybe I could live an extra two years because that maybe then becomes like trying and hope, you know, where you're really setting yourself up uh, with an expectation uh, to not meet those goals. Sure. Another study that I really enjoyed was the Air Force pilot study. Do you remember this yeah. one? And can you tell us about it? Sure. sure. Um, essentially, the argument that goes throughout is that we're more capable of doing virtually everything than we believe we are. So this started with um, my going to the doctor, just like everybody else, 
many years ago and being asked to read the eye chart. And as you all know, the eye chart starts with large letters and gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, I'm bizarre. We know that, right? So most people just read the letters and whatever happens, happens. For me, <clears throat> you know, I say, wait a second. Since the letters are getting smaller, there's a built-in expectation that soon I won't be able to see. And the question for me was, is it that expectation that's leading me not to see? Or is it, you know, biologically determined, so to speak? And uh, so we, the first thing we did was turn the eye chart upside down. Not literally. We had, you know, go from smaller letters to larger letters, thereby um, creating the expectation as you go down the chart that soon you will be able to see. And what we found were people were able to see things that they couldn't see before. Another thing we did there, most people can't see maybe around two thirds of the way down the chart. So all we did was give the regular eye chart, but we started it um, a third of the way down. So now two thirds of the way down are much smaller letters. And again, people were able to see what they couldn't see before. And you can just, I think about it and that, you know, uh, who cares about seeing letters that have no meaning to you, you know, uh, in no context, in fact, a medical context where you start off stress um, and we hold a vision still, you know, your vision changes in the course of the day, your vision changes depending on how happy, um, tired or whatever you, you may or may not be. When I'm hungry, I can see the restaurant sign much further away, you know, than when I'm not. And if I don't want to see you, DJ, and I, you know, you're coming, you could be coming around, the, you know, I'm going to be hypervigilant and, and see you. Okay, so it seemed to me there was room to play. So what we did was um, to take uh, Harvard undergraduates and put a group of them in uniforms and make them Air Force pilots. Because the mindset we have is that Air Force pilots have excellent vision or else they, they couldn't be Air Force pilots. So they're um, in-flight simulators, which feel like you're actually in a real place. And this is kind of funny story also. When I wanted to use the flight simulator, I thought, oh, all right, you know, and, uh, I, and, and it turned out everybody wanted to use it, all the men, want to fly you know and so i thought i'm doing them a favor but it took a while for them to agree to let us use a simulator anyway so um we have um men in um playing the part of in their minds being air force pilots which means then they have excellent vision and they're in a flight simulator and we have this is a whole kind of ridiculous, but an oncoming plane that has numbers on it, which are taken from the eye chart. And um, the question was, could they now, being Air Force pilots, see smaller letters than they were able to sitting in the doctor's office? And the answer is clearly yes. That's so cool because I think it ties really what I teach a lot, Dr. Langer, with my, with my high school and college athletes is to act as if. And so for people that are struggling exactly. with confidence is a big one. Exactly. Well, what if we just yeah, act with confidence and then it's or, not fake it till you make it. It's really fake it till you behave it. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. There? Well, yeah. And I think that's wonderful advice. Another version of it is to be the person who you think can solve the problem. You know, so, um, you know, uh, I would have no difficulty um, 
calling somebody on you know whatever issue and so if you find it hard to do that but you imagine that you're me um then it's easier although then it's you you know um it, it's like um taking a placebo what what happens in most placebo studies is that you know you take a placebo this placebo is inert by definition it's a nothing pill right a sugar pill so you take it and you get better now what these studies should do is then talk to these people and say look you got better you know with a placebo so if it wasn't this fake pill that made you better who made you better you did it yourself so um it's sort of you know remember when you were a kid probably uh, your mother or father would take you out with a new bicycle and they're holding on and then you're riding and you're confident and all of a sudden you realize hey you know you're doing it yourself because they let go a while ago that's the feeling you know that people have to realize after um you know they're pretending to be somebody else or we put them in uniform or whatever else to realize gee i did that myself which means going forward i could do it myself that's a great lesson so one of my bylines or the or kind of keys is stay curious another one i like to say a lot is that i like to say that i help kids attack the gap from where they are now to where mm. they want to be and you talk about this and i, I underlined it because i thought it was so cool there's some parallels there you talk about Zeno's paradox about where yeah. you are and where you want yeah. to be and i'm going to kind of use some of this so so talk to me a little bit about maybe what i should say instead of that and what is the what is Zeno's paradox and why do you flip it Okay, so yeah, Zeno, I, I think, in the Greek philosopher who I think must have been a cynic. Um, but this, his paradox with respect to distance was if you always go half the distance from where you are to where you want to be, you're never going to get there. Right? So let's say you're an inch away. Well, then you're a half an inch away. Then you're a quarter of an inch away. And you're an eighth of an inch. You know, Okay, so I Zeno, you know, let's turn this around. There's always a step small enough from where you are to where you want to be. And so if you can't get the full distance, go half the distance. If you can't get half a distance, go quarter of a distance. You can always take three steps, literally or figuratively, you know, towards your goal. And um, so I think that the message, there are several messages for people. One is it's the going that is the important thing, not actually arriving. So it doesn't matter. You know, don't don't worry about whether you get there. Just begin. Um, another, as we've already said, is you can never know that you can't. Um, and and doing is so much fun. And um, and you can have them do it as if they're somebody else. You know, if I gave you some math problems and I had you watch a film about Albert Einstein and made believe you were Albert Einstein or some famous mathematician, even better, um, you'd probably be more likely to solve it. So, um, what if, I'm answering a question and I've lost the question. No, the Zeno, yeah. So I think I think the biggest misconception is that it has to be this big grand step. Where I think what you're oh, yeah. more yeah. referencing is small steps yeah and um it's also that when you take a step towards anything and it doesn't work uh there's no way of knowing exactly why it didn't work 
And so let's say, I'm, as I said, I'm a tennis player. So let's say I hit the ball and I hit it to Chicago rather than just over the net. Okay. Um, I would tell myself that, oh, I should have bent my legs. I should have done this or, you know, whatever. Now, the reason that I hit it to Chicago might have nothing to do with what I've just told myself. Nevertheless, by telling myself this, um, I'm reminding myself of a better way to play. So you can learn from an error, even if that's not the reason you made the error. Uh, and another thing that people need to know, we go back to the mind-body unity idea, the research by other people, it actually turns out that if you imagine uh, uh, doing the exercise, uh, your performance improves. And, you know, literally, they, if you imagine uh, weightlifting or I think it was whatever, you know, um, physical exercises, that the difference, the result uh, between um, doing it literally or imagine doing it uh, is small, where the difference of not doing it and doing it with your imagination you know, can be quite large. Wow. So, so even when, you know, when we've hurt ourselves or have, you know, the flu or something and can't be on the field, uh, we can still be on the field in our minds. And that helps. I've heard about this in a basketball sense where they worked with a, a basketball team on their free throws and they would have them imagine them and they and they kind of set up this experiment where they'd imagine it, they'd visualize it, and then they'd shoot the free throws. And by doing that, that actually increased their percentages across the board versus not doing it. So that could be a great way for teams to look at yeah. using visualization. Also, visualization. I, I think people also have to open up the latitude of acceptance. So for me, I'm playing basketball, which I used to play, not professionally, clearly, but um, if I threw the ball and it went around the rim and then fell out, to me, that was a success because it would take nothing more from me you know, mm -hmm. for it to have actually, instead of falling out after it circles the rim, to, to go in the rim. And so, and with every success you have, you become that much more open to whatever it takes to become more successful. You know, and so to remember that who decided uh, what success is in these games, you know, that um, I think it must have been somebody really strange who developed the game of golf, you know, that if you hit the ball 300 yards, it's the same as hitting it an inch. You know, <laughs> um, but but even though that's the way the game is supposed to be played, it doesn't mean that's the way you have to understand it. So if you and I are playing tennis and I have I have an incredible drop shot. I can say it's incredible. Years ago, I was always criticized because it was risky. And then Serena Williams has the same drop shot, of course, at a whole different level. And now I'm allowed to hit. And I do it from the service line. Okay. So I have my one great shot. Um, if I lose the game, but I got in two of those, it's a win. Right. You know, so um, if we, and to go back to Zeno, that whatever game you're playing, whatever you're doing, if you see the improvement, slight improvement, that's a win. Rather than taking yourself to task for not, you know, um, uh, ending as the winner or even finishing it, uh, period. 
Sure. Another piece of your book, we're talking about the mindful body, thinking our way to chronic health. Another part that I underlined, I liked a lot because I teach a lot of it this, in a similar fashion is the illusion of control. This was fascinating to me. Can you open up that, talk to that a little bit about what's yeah. the illusion of control? What do we okay. get wrong about that? Okay. Well, it's interesting because um, when I did, this was my dissertation back at Yale um, centuries ago. <laughs> And um, uh, at that point, I was like most people, and I believe people talking to slot machines and um, uh, choosing numbers that were people's birthdays or whatever, their you know, pet's birthday, buying a lottery ticket, that these things were So the original definition was when uh, the subjective probability, what you believe the probability is, is higher than the objective probability would warrant. Well, it's too complicated for us to go through it here, but the whole notion of probability has problems. You know, um, let me give one one fast example. When I teach this in class, I mean, I have a decision-making class. I say, okay, if everybody who's here now comes back next week, what is the likelihood, what is the probability the person will have brown hair? Okay, same straightforward, right? Except we can take these uh, Asian kids in particular whose hair is very dark brown, and we could call it black or we could call it brown. You could take somebody a dirty blonde and call it brown or call it black. So there's some way I could count everybody in the room and say 100% um, likelihood. A likelihood is that everybody who's here next week will have brown hair, or we could eliminate these dirty blondes and the dark browns and now uh 28% whatever it would come to um of the people will have brown hair so the point is that when you're determining a probability who's deciding um what the denominator is and what the um and the numerator in order to get the number um okay where was i going with that illusion of control uh, yeah. Okay. So still way back when in the seventies, I believe there was a, there was a way to determine objective uh, probability, not realizing what I, what I just said now. And so um, basically it was when people are acting as if they could control chance events. And I outline all of that and so on. And it, it became an, a very well-read study. I mean, it was part of the reason for uh, uh, the uh, beginning of behavioral economics and so on. But now I start writing, I say, wait a second, you know, um, if you believe you have control, how can I know that you don't have control when we go out in the real world? So like a silly example, there was this game I played years and years ago at a Las Vegas Nugget of Temple. And it had a cage that had um, dice in it. And all they did was turn it over. So it's a 180 degree turn. Okay, so I'm sitting there, there are, let's say, uh, eight dice and die. Um, and People might not know, but uh, if the if you have a three showing, there's a four that's hidden. A five, it always adds up to seven, right? So I see six fours, and I bet on three because when she turns the cage, you know, it, at least one. Okay, so I had a theory, and I was making money, and so why it it would seem irrational for me to assume that it, you know. 
that it was just chance determined. I kept winning. Right. Then she saw that and she would rattle the cage. And okay, so now we have a new <laughs> testament. But the idea is rather than recognize, see it as an illusion of control, as if we have some special knowledge of what can and can't be controlled, right? You have somebody um, who, uh, go back to the Diana Nyad, you know, who wants to swim from Florida to uh, Cuba or Cuba to Florida, and you say, it can't be done. She's irrational until it's done. So things are impossible and somebody does it. And then we often act as if we always knew it. So um, a better way of understanding what I used to call an illusion of control is to realize that the person, the actor, from the actor's perspective, they have real control. And to believe you have control is much better than to end up feeling helpless. Another piece on page 44. So one page after is called. Oh, wait, page 44. Let me remember. <laughs> I got it right here. Don't worry. On page what did I say on page 44? I, yeah, I have this underlined and I, and I love to it's kind of close down with some of this because this is a lot of what I teach as well. You have uh, my first one was the much better approach is to focus instead on control uh, instead is to uh, focus on controlling events after the decisions. As we will see in chapter four, trying to predict the future is the real illusion of control. The problem with decision making is that we tend to get stressed not only by consequential decisions, but also by inconsequential choices. The impact of that stress can be worse than the worst case scenario triggered by the wrong choice. And the other line I had that's so great, events are neither good nor bad. It is our thoughts that make them so. That's mindful optimism. Can you talk on that? Oh, there's so much there. I'm not sure which part to, to pick up you pick. on. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, well... Um, decision-making, people have all wrong. Uh, the way people make decisions is perfectly fine, but decision theorists make you think that it's wrong. What they want you to do is a cost-benefit analysis, but you can't sensibly do a cost-benefit analysis because if you're mindful, you recognize every cost is also a benefit. Every benefit is also a cost. So if you add it up, it's not going to tell you what to do. And so what I suggest, and you know, there's a lot of detail there and we don't have time to go through it, but to give people a way out of all of this, because decision-making is often very stressful, um, is don't worry about making the right decision. Make the decision right. You could roll dice, you know, um, you could toss a coin, you could have a rule, whatever the first choice that comes to mind is what I'm going to do, because prediction is an illusion. We cannot know. All right. So as soon as you choose one option or the other, then see all of the ways that that's actually an advantage. Now, people don't realize that prediction is an illusion. This is a hard one to get across. But on some level, uh, people know, and I'll, I'll give an example. Um, you know, you can, science can show you how to predict what the group will be. And that's where we get, you know, these probabilities from. So most horses might not eat meat, possibly, but it doesn't mean every single horse doesn't eat meat, right? Um, and so if you said to yourself, um, uh, I'm going to show you that prediction is an illusion. So you can't predict the individual case. So let's say I say to you, DJ, let's go to a Mercedes parking lot. So, you know, um, and uh, not, you know, well, they have 200 Mercedes. 
And I say, okay, choose one, any one you want. It's a random choice. And here, you get you the key. And if that Mercedes starts, I'll give you a million dollars. Wow. If the Mercedes doesn't start, you give me a million dollars. You're not going to take the bet, even if you had the million dollars, right? Um, because, you know, sometimes things don't work, right? And it's very important to recognize that because as individuals, we're always dealing with the individual case, not with the, you know, it's great if this operation works for 90% of the people. It doesn't, you know, what about the other 10%? And am I going to be part of the 10 or the 90? And so, uh, we can never know this. Uh, I had my students, I said, okay, what I want you to do is spend the week until class next time and don't make any decision. Just flip a coin or use, you know, one of the rules we said before and then come back in time. And of course, if somebody says, excuse me, can I cut off your arm? I need an extra hand. You know, you're not going to say yes. Okay. Um, and so they come back and to a one, they're thrilled. It was a stress-free week. You know, um, you can't know. And if you can't know, you can't sensibly make a decision, right? Um, so when we realize prediction is an illusion, but it doesn't matter because outcomes don't come prepackaged. So whatever happens, it's an advantage. So DJ, you and I go out for lunch. The food is wonderful. Great. We go out for lunch. The food is awful. Great. I'll eat less. I'll pay, presumably, probably not, but it'll give me more opportunity to listen to what you have to say. All right. So our experience of the world is under our control. The more mindful we are, the more choices we have as to how to understand it. Mm. So and the I'm fact that everything, everything is in flux is actually a very exciting thing. Once you recognize that you can um, handle whatever outcome be, um, happens. And all sorts of possibilities open up for us with respect to our general competence, our relationships, the degree of stress we experience, and the part we didn't get into, um, but our physical health. That ways when you're more mindful, you're actively noticing, the neurons are firing, and it's literally and figuratively enlivening. Dr. Lane, you're on fire. I like to end my uh, podcast interviews with uh, some sort of an, an advice question or an action item. So to close this down, what is what is one way or two ways that my athletes I work with can be more mindful? What are two one or two action items that my athletes can do to be more mindful? Well, um, I, mean, I think we've I've given many. Um, you know, one is don't presume anything. Don't presume you can, you can't, that you're going to get tired, that you're not able to be the very best today. You had a fight with your girlfriend, and now you think that necessarily means you'll behave more poorly. Um, so it's, it's in always the case that if we have a healthier respect for uncertainty, all sorts of possibilities open up for us. Uncertainty about what we're able to do, uncertainty about um, uh, whether we're able to heal, how long take us to heal, um, that all of our accomplishments are, in some sense, more under our control than people tend to realize. Awesome. Dr. Lang, thanks for your time. How can my listeners best support you? 
Um, well, let's say there's a few ways. First, they should read the book and make sure that um, they enjoy it the way you suggest that you do. Um, it was very meaningful to me. As I, I mentioned in the book, it started off um, as a memoir. So there are a lot of personal stories there, Mike's experience with Hell's Angels, getting married when I was very sexy stuff. Um, so the way they could help me is buy the book. It's a wonderful Christmas present. Um, and then rate the book if they should buy it on Amazon, um, uh, use social media. But I think that oddly, or maybe not oddly, the thing that would be most meaningful to me is for people to take it seriously and improve their lives with it. That's awesome. Dr. Lanning, thanks for your time. Thanks for your wisdom. And uh, thanks for all of your research and the work you've put into this book and all the other books. It's really a joy to, uh, to meet with you and learn from you today. Thank you very much, DJ. This was fun. <laughs>